From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Bim Adewumi, sitting in for Ira Glass. Not too long ago, a few of us here on the show were talking about families and how everybody has a role to play in theirs. And whatever your role is, it sort of becomes your identity. Like, this one's insular and really into books. Or that one's the sensitive one who's quick to anger. Or the little one's the sweetheart. That sort of thing. And the longer we talked about it, the more we began to notice a pattern. Sisters in particular often have very specific, very pithy elevator pitches about themselves and each other. Like my colleague on the show, Emmanuel Berry. Okay, so I have three sisters. Um, my oldest sister is Danielle. She's like the rebel. She's the sister who moved out when she was a teenager. Um, then we have Elena, and she's like... I guess you could say, like, the diva. Uh, and then my youngest sister, Kiana, who's sort of, like, the want, wants to have fun all the time, like, a little, like, wild. But uh-huh. not, like, too wild. Um, <laughs> she's see. fun. She's the fun one, I guess. Uh-huh. Yeah. And when it came to Emmanuel's role, she said this thing, partly being funny, but also sort of seriously. I'm the favorite. Yeah, I'm the favorite sister. Huh. The best. Okay. See, that's that's overconfident right there. <laughs> I was so sure that the story that my sisters tell about me is that I'm their favorite sister. Amazing. Like, it is so clear to me that I'm each of their favorite sister. Okay, just and checking. I know, I know it sounds, like, unbelievably cocky, but I, but I really don't think it's coming from a place of cockiness so much as, like, in terms of our, like, personalities, I'm the personality that, like... Can, can be the favorite. <laughs> you know? Nothing you're saying is making it better. No, I say that because I think I'm, I'm like the peacekeeper. So like I'm the one that gets along easiest with each of my sisters. You're yeah. like the character in the teen movie who's friends with the jocks and the nerds and the, yes. the hipsters and the cool black girls and all, all that stuff. That's everyone. you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Basically. Okay. So, Emmanuel, I, I have to ask, uh, in the interest of journalistic integrity, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. would your sisters corroborate the uh, very specific idea that you have that you are their favorite? I mean, yeah, I, th- <laughs> <laughs> I think. I mean, I thought, but then I called my sisters. When I describe you to others? Yeah, like, is there a story that you tell about me? Or is there, like, a manual? Is well, I'm always, like, sister. my sister, Emmanuel, who's, like, super smart. She has a super cool job in New York. <laughs> it, 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 it does kind of come down to, like, something <laughs> so terrible. But Elena's the pretentious one. You're the ambitious one. Kiana's the one with the kid. <laughs> I just always think of you as, like, uh, the family boss. Like, Mm. I don't know. If we were a mob family, you would be the boss of this family. (laughs) (laughs) So when I asked my sister, Elena, she's the second eldest. She's right before me. What's the story she tells to describe me? The first one that popped up. (laughs) It's not that flattering. (laughs) It's not that flattering? I know. I mean, it was just the time that you punched me in the eye. (laughs) (laughs) And you were like four at the time, right? Okay. So we were playing Pocahontas. Yeah. And I was the older sibling. And so I was going to be Pocahontas. You were younger than me. I mean, I always was playing some <laughs> random side character or boy. Always. And so you played her best friend. And I just remember, and we were in a tent too, because we set up a tent in the living room. You know, and you were like, I want to be Pocahontas. And then you punched me in the eye. <laughs> <laughs> 
So just uh, just doing a tally up uh-huh, of, of the uh-huh. responses of your sisters. So punched in the face, ambitious, the boss of the family, mafia style. Uh-huh. It's amazing to me how different those things are from the favorites. Um, I ask them for the first thing they think of, okay? <laughs> right. So, wait, hang on. So, favorite is not supposed to be the first, just one of the things. They could, say. I, I guess maybe it's just like buried deeper uh-huh. than I anticipated in their like minds. You this know? is uh, amazing back- backpedaling, and I love that. <laughs> Okay, so they didn't immediately say she was their favourite, but she doesn't mind. Instead, what struck Emmanuel in these conversations was how it seemed like they all were telling the same stories, but with different entrance points, like a low-stakes Rashomon. I mean, Danielle's story, right, is about me being like the mob boss of the family, or that's the, the sort of like role that she holds me in. And the story I tell about her is that she left when she was a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's weird because they're sort of connected in this way where like, her leaving as a teenager kind of resulted in me having to take up some of that space and and be maybe more of a boss, right? So it's sort of like action and consequences, like we're telling sort of the same thing. Uh-huh. And then with my sister Kiana, the story she tells about me when we talked more is about how um, when we were in high school together, um, I tried to kick her off the basketball team. Hold on. Uh, that's a very casual way of uh, <laughs> saying something quite horrid. You is what? So is it <laughs> horrid? I I was the captain of the basketball team, and she wasn't taking it seriously. Uh, Explain. She wasn't taking it seriously, and I was very serious about basketball. And she was just always goofing around, and she never wanted to run. She'd always, all of a sudden, like have a cramp, and she couldn't do the suicide. I absolutely one hundred percent love <laughs> the air quotes. They really add something to the storytelling. And uh, what's the story that you tell about her in relation to that? We went to Puerto Rico together uh, for spring break when I was in college, uh, my senior year. And she, like, fell hard for this guy. And she kept, like, disappearing, and I didn't know where she was. And we got in this huge fight where we were, like, screaming drunk in the streets at each other. And she's like, I'm an adult. And I'm like, I'm calling mom and dad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, but... At its core, it's sort of about how Kiana is always about. Kiana wants to have fun, like at the end of the day. That's what it's about for her. Right. And you're sort of the fun marshal. A little bit, yeah. I mean, I got to keep her in line. Yeah, like a boss. (laughs) Like a mob boss. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the boss, and like Kiana's a wild one, and we each sort of have like these labels, right? But they're also kind of outdated. Like my sister Kiana is like a mother, and I don't think she can drink a half a glass of wine without passing out anymore. Like a very. Very different than Puerto Rico, Kiana. Sure. (laughs) But you sort of like, right, you get stuck with these roles from childhood. Um, Like we're a weird ecosystem or something like that. And we all have a place. So like she's the fun one. So I can't be the fun one. Right. You can't have two letter A's. Yeah. (laughs) In the alphabet. Uh, Even though you might make similar sounds, I feel like you're all such distinct letters. And each one has to kind of fit in. Yeah. Yeah in this sort of, like, world that we've created as sisters. Unlike Emmanuel, I only have one sister. But if I had to define myself, like, if someone asked me about the foundational underpinning of my identity, among all the many things I could say that I think in paragraphs or that I tend to cheerfulness over melancholy before all of that. 
The thing that I would say is that I'm Ade's little sister. She's three years older than me, the kindest person I know, my best friend. I love her like she's me. And when I was small, I wanted more than to be like her. I kind of wanted to eat her up, just consume her. I was obsessed with her, but like in a healthy way. We created this dense, self-contained world together as kids. One example of it was Funky 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 Radio, a radio station universe that we made up and recorded onto cassettes that we lost years ago. We did news and current affairs and human interest stories and sports, specifically horse racing, with the twist that in this world, the horses could talk and they all had very different personalities. My sister was basically the station manager. She directed our work like she directed my life at that age. Funky 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 Radio was completely for us. We'd play it back to ourselves and give notes on what we could do better next time. Sometimes we played it to our dad. But it wasn't for him. It was an exercise in sisterly world building. Being a younger sister is how I move through the world. I'm the second one, the younger one, the littler one. I'm aware of all the cliches, that they're annoying, attention hogs, the ones who get to mess up, a whole box of behaviours. Even so, with the noted exceptions of Amy March and Lydia Bennett, I reserve my biggest love for almost every literary or pop culture little sister. Serena over Venus, Marianne Dashwood over Eleanor, Sasha Obama over Malia. I'm the second of four, so that means I'm a big sister too, to two brothers whom I love very much, Demola and Dapo. But that fact, the fact that I am also two other people's older sister, is so secondary to that first fundamental identity that I have. I'm the little sister. Maybe it's because my sister knew me before I really knew myself. I got to meet my brothers when they arrived in this world. But Ade, she was already a fact. She's the most constant thing in my life. I've never known a world without her. I can't imagine it. And I don't want to. Today's show is about that world that can exist between only sisters, the worlds they build together, and the things that could knock those worlds off their axis. We have two stories today about the bonds between sisters and how they get broken and fixed, or not. Stay with us. Sister Act One, Cindy and Diana. We start today with sisters Cindy and Diana Carcomo. They're close. But recently, they've been struggling with this thing that happened when they were very young. For the first part of their childhood, they didn't know each other at all. Here's Cindy. My family's from Guatemala. My sister Diana was born there. She lived there for years, far away from me and my parents. I was born in L.A. When we were little, Diana believed that explained one difference between us. I thought you were very American-looking. What she means by American-looking is that I looked white. At one point, I remember thinking that if you were born in China, you would look Chinese. And if you were born in America, you... Yeah, I remember thinking like that. So it could be that, you know, I thought she was... She was born in the U.S., so she was very American-looking. And I was like, wow, she looks really different than the way I look. In Guatemala, like a lot of places, whiter skin is considered prettier. My lighter skin became a thing for us growing up. Like one time, a family friend Ricardo came to visit. He looked like the famous 80s singer, El Puma. 
So I remember him making a comment one time. I remember exactly where we were. We were at the entry of the house. And yeah, and I remember him saying, oh, Cindy, you're, you're, you're so pretty. Oh, look at you. And then I remember him um, telling me, oh, your sister's so pretty. Oh, it's a good thing you're smart. I'm glad you're smart. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, yeah, I am smart. And I was like, okay, that's kind of odd. But but I knew I knew very well though why you were prettier than me. To me, she was always so beautiful and great, so quick-witted, so good at managing everything, at reading a room. She always knew what to say. For as long as I can remember, I wanted to be like her. She was a responsible one. I was a space cadet. She was a neat one. I was the messy one. At one point, she put tape down the middle of the bedroom and told me to keep my mess on my side. All those things, I always thought, that's just who she is, how she is. Rigidly organized, high achieving, her obsession with being perfect, always wanting to please. But while we were talking, it dawned on me for the first time that I had it all wrong. A lot of those traits had to do with her being separated from our parents. No, because I didn't want to disappoint them. Yeah, I knew, I, you know, I had to be a good girl and I had to listen to, I had to listen to whatever they said and I had to impress them because I didn't want to be sent back. By sent back, she's talking about being sent to Guatemala. My mom and dad came to the U.S. when Diana was just a baby. My mom was a teenager. They were crossing illegally, and she worried it was too dangerous to bring her. It seemed irresponsible. So they left Diana with her grandmother, Chita. It was a cushy setup. They had a housekeeper who basically waited on Diana. They lived in a nice neighborhood. And anyway, my parents assumed they'd be back for her soon. She wouldn't end up joining them for years. It's only now that I'm beginning to put together a more complete picture of why that was and how much it shaped Diana and her family. For a long time, I knew the basic facts. Diana lived the first years of her life in Guatemala without my parents, and then she came home. But I never knew the full story. What was it really like for her? How did it affect her? What did she imagine about her life in L.A.? Sometimes you can be so close to people that this is the kind of thing you don't ask about. What was your idea of what mom and dad were like? I pictured her as this almost like professional career, beautiful woman. I knew she worked full time. And um, I remember them saying something about how she used to like design like fabrics. So I thought that was pretty glamorous. And I remember the way she dressed, like she wore these like kind of fitted shirts. And I remember looking at her and thinking, wow, she has such a beautiful body. I want to be like her. You know, she had this like cute butt. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I don't have a butt. I want to have a butt like mama. Diana told me during the years apart, she would imagine what it would be like when she finally joined us. Like a lot of a lot of hugs, telling me that I was very special, that they loved me, and I and I thought I was going to be very special coming here, uh, you know, to the U.S. 
because they were finally going to have me and I thought I was going to be like on this throne type of thing because they had missed me so much and they were going to want to be with me. My parents did miss Diana desperately. While Diana was in Guatemala, they sent her boxes full of toys, clothes, and American candy, like Snickers bars and Wrigley's chewing gum, stuff that was pricey or hard to find back then. My mom told me after they were separated, she kept having this dream where Diana was on a mountain that she couldn't reach. She became deeply depressed. It runs in our family, but it's hard to know whether mom started because of the separation or if it was there all along, and the separation made it worse. The first time my mom was able to visit Guatemala after the separation, Diana was two or three. She hadn't seen her for over a year. Now she was meeting her as a toddler. This was before I was born. My mom showed up with a suitcase full of outfits and toys for Diana, and when she got to the house, Diana sort of ignored her. She'd rather hang out with Chita or her Aunt Estella, or Uncle Yambi. At one point, my mom scolded her for something, and Diana responded with, Tu no me criaste. You didn't raise me. Though she couldn't pronounce her R, so the way the story is always told in my family, she said, Tu no me criaste. My mom felt rejected. She says, looking back, she knows she shouldn't have felt that way. But she was so young. She was only 20. Meanwhile, her mom, Chita, was emphatic that Diana should stay. She cried. She told my mom, I'm attached to her now. Don't take her away. By the end of the visit, my mom decided she couldn't tear Diana away from Chita and the family she did know. So she came back to the U.S., alone, without Diana. She left the suitcase full of toys behind. That scene, mom going to get Diana, Diana staying in Guatemala, that turned into something that happened over and over. It happened so many times that both Diana and my mom have lost track. It was always the same. Mom would come with the intention of bringing Diana back with her. Diana didn't really want to be with her. Chita would cry. And mom couldn't bear to take Diana away from her. I'd heard that story a lot growing up. The back and forth tormented my mom for years. I asked her to talk to me for the story, but she said no. She can't talk about this without crying, and that embarrasses her. Until now, it never occurred to me to ask Diana how all this felt to her. Diana told me the constant thing she remembers is my parents would come to take her, and the adults would start arguing, and it was really confusing. She wanted to go with mom and dad, but she didn't want to leave Chita behind either. And the adults around her weren't helping. One day they'd tell her, you're leaving, and then they'd tell her, never mind, you're staying. That was a kind of detail about Diana's childhood that I didn't know most of my life. And I didn't know this part either. At one point, my parents turned to Diana and asked her point blank. So how about it? Do you want to come live with us in the U.S.? And Diana was like, sure. She was around four. But then I remember the next day, Tia Stella saying, you shouldn't go. We love you here. You should really just stay here with us. Why do you want to go with them? They left you anyway. So it was that type of conversation. And then I remember mom and dad asking me again and me saying no. 
And then I remember mom and dad being very upset about that. To this day, this comes up in my family, by the way, that Diana said she wanted to stay. My parents bring it up whenever Diana asks, why didn't you bring me? It's become this ongoing refrain. They'll say, you said no. We asked you, remember? It's gone on for years. As a reporter, I've covered family separations. I've covered U.S. immigration policy for more than a decade, most recently for the Los Angeles Times. And in my job, I've covered their reunifications. Families in airports or at the border, hugging each other and crying. Teenagers and moms, dads and toddlers, with toddlers looking stoic and distant. The whole range. I'm the reporter who goes up to them and asks them how they're feeling. For a lot of people, I think these scenes look like an ending, the conclusion of these stories. But I know they're not. They're just the beginning. This moment when a child is returned to their parents, I'm always thinking, the next part? That's the hard part. My sister still remembers the exact date that she finally joined my parents in the United States, December 7th, 1982. She was eight. I was three. My parents were legal residents by then. Diana came with Chita. Mom thought it would be easier that way. And they came for a long visit. At the end, the plan was Diana stays. And this time, Chita relented. Diana was finally here for good. Until I started asking her about this recently, I'd always imagined the years of separation were the hardest part for Diana. But that wasn't true at all. I didn't know my parents, and I didn't know how they were going to treat me. I didn't—I really didn't know them. Um, so it was almost like I was with strangers. Back in Guatemala, Diana grew up with aunties and cousins who lived steps away, a whole network of people who doted on her. There was a refrigerator full of homemade ice cream, and Chita would let Diana grab what she wanted. It must have been so weird for her having to navigate a whole new set of rules and ways of living, having to decipher everything and all of us. I remember feeling really lonely. I missed Yembi a lot, my uncle. And then, of course, Chito, Grandpa. I missed him a lot. I remember I had a... Uh, Mom and Dad bought me a lot of, um, like, stuffed animals, and I remember I named all of them. So I, one of them was like Paola, one of them was Yambi, one of them was Chito. I, like, they all had, a all had a name. I remember feeling lonely all the time. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it lasted for, it pro you know, it lasted, gosh. I think I started feel, feeling more comfortable with everything, probably... In junior high. Oh, it's a long time. Mm -hmm. This was the first time I heard this, and it crushed me. It's hard for me to hear this, to hear Diana dealing with this in such a little kid way. She never seemed like a kid to me when we were little. She was so competent. She was so good at school, straight A's, always so practical. She didn't like to play. I had an imaginary friend growing up, 
And she very rationally was like, that doesn't make sense. I've always felt she was a grown-up from the beginning. But of course, she wasn't. She felt insecure, like an outsider. So she made a plan to try to fit in, to make herself indispensable to our family. Here's what she did every day. She made her bed in mine. She dressed me in the morning. She made her lunch for school. She helped me with my homework. She washed dishes after dinner. And on the weekend, she helped my mom clean the bathroom. This was the stuff Toya did back in Guatemala, the housekeeper. Diana did all of this because in her mind, the stakes were so high. She really did think she'd be sent back. I had no idea. And this wasn't just some little kid thought she had. She told me that the adults warned her that might happen. Um, just because I remember Chito telling me that I had to be really good, or because if I wasn't good, they could send me back. Ugh. Yeah. But I, I, Diana I says she heard this from our Chita, too. My mom was always the hardest relationship for Diana to figure out. It didn't help that her mom's depression continued and went undiagnosed for years. So life with mom could be unpredictable. Anything would set her off. My mom was so fragile. She seemed constantly aggravated and anxious. And she was usually unsatisfied with anything Diana did. They'd argue over the temperature of the dishwater or the settings on the dryer. Diana being a little late when she picked her up from school. Always hanging around was a hurt my mom felt from when Diana had refused to come to the U.S., back when she was little. She would just get really mad and, and just, you know, say things like, I shouldn't have come here, or I just do things to upset her. Ever since I came to this country, I would just upset her, and I would do things on purpose to upset her. She said that to you, I, that you shouldn't have come here? Do you remember that? I mean, or did, was yeah, that something yeah. she said all the time? No, not all the time, but she would just say, you know, ever since you came, you just do things to upset me, things like that. When did she first say that to you? Oh, I don't remember. It would, she would, you know, she, um, yeah, I mean, it would come up, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would come up a lot, you know. Another thing that would come up a lot was, well, you, you don't really love us. That's why you didn't want to come with us in the first place. I mean, stuff like that has come up so many times. I mean, it's just, I mean, it probably came up like not too long ago. Probably me as an adult, like in my 30s, probably. Well, I remember when you didn't want to come with us. Uh, You know, it's just like stuff, that stuff has come up all the time. It's just, it's nothing new. I had no idea my mom had said those things. It felt to me like that was just a harsh thing to say to a kid. Here, holding something against Diana, this thing she said when she was so little. But I also realized how much of a scar that was for my mom. When we were teenagers, Diana was always so busy. I never got as much time as I wanted. It still is sort of that way. I have to book her in advance just to hang out with her. I never really understood it, but it makes more sense now. How Diana kind of turned away from home and started throwing herself into work. She got her first job at 15 so she could pay her own way more and help the household. When she was in high school, it seemed like all she did was study. College, too. She had a full load of courses and a couple of jobs. 
Well, yeah. Why did you feel you had to be the perfect kid? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I just wanted mom and dad to love me. I got here late, right? I got here when I was eight years old. They didn't really have a relationship with me. So I wanted them to love me. When Diana said I got here late, it just cut me apart. It's like she's blaming herself. Like she had an appointment and she messed it all up and showed up late. I've always known my sister and I had different experiences, but I'm only now realizing just how different. Recently, I noticed, for example, that my mom has always used with me the less formal and more intimate form of voz. Diana, instead, has always been addressed as usted, which automatically puts a distance between them. I talked with my mom about this, and she said she didn't consciously do it. I believe it. But looking back, she also said maybe she did that because, ever since the separation, she's felt Diana no longer belonged to her. Also, in almost every sibling squabble, my mom took my side, which turned the three of us into this uncomfortable little triangle. The two of them would fight so much, I'd get anxious and try to play the peacemaker. It didn't always work. They yelled at each other, got mad at me for taking the other side, and it ended up feeling like I let them both down in some way. The older we got, the worse it felt. As we were talking, my producer Nadia Raymond asked Diana if she could think of examples of how she and I were treated differently. She had a hard time deciding where to start. Okay, well, first, um, they, they, I, you know, they bought me a car, and I was expected to pay car insurance. Cindy got a car. Cindy got her car paid for, her insurance paid for. Whenever I needed an oil change, I took care of it. I changed the tires. I did everything. Whenever Cindy got a, needed an oil change, dad would go do it for her. In college, I had to pay for school. I had to work to pay for school. Cindy went to college. Cindy got everything paid for. Not only that, but she got spending money. Not only that, but she ran up a phone bill. They paid for that. They, they, didn't, they didn't help me at all under, for undergrad. My mom says, if Diana remembers it that way, she must be right. Though my parents did help her with grad school. And I know it's easy for some of this to sound like normal sibling stuff, older kid, little sister stuff. But one of the hardest parts of this is that it's hard for Diana and me to tell what was about her separation and what wasn't. It would have been so easy for Diana to resent me, to be so mad at how I was treated versus how she was treated. But that didn't happen. Instead, she doubled down on being my greatest protector and advocate. She didn't like it when anyone said anything mean about me or when the neighborhood kids didn't want to play with me. And in turn, I'd follow her around like a puppy dog. When we talked about this recently, I kept asking her, really? You never resented me? But in this very reasonable Diana way, she said, no, it wasn't you. You were just a kid. But so is she. The way the separation, our beginning, has shaped the rest of our lives, sometimes we forget about it. 
sometimes we're caught off guard by it, but it never goes away. 11 years ago, Diana had a son, Pablo. Soon after Diana gave birth to him, mom came to stay with Diana to help her out. Things felt different, like the separation was finally fading. My mom was treating her depression and was in a much better place. She and Diana had been able to build a relationship. They'd gotten close. One day, my mom was changing Pablo's diaper. And I remember her specifically telling me what I didn't do with you, the time that I didn't spend with you, I will make up for it with Pablo. That was a hope anyway. Pablo would help them finally repair this 30-year-old hurt. And then Pablo turned eight. I remember doing dishes and thinking, wow, Pablo is eight. That's when I came to the U.S. He really, he's really just a kid. You know, why, why did I go through so much? I started thinking like, okay, you know, I tried so hard. Why was the eight-year-old trying so hard to make her mom happy? Why wasn't it the other way around, right? Why was it me thinking, I better be good because they may, they may send me back? When Diana had Pablo, she had a hard time leaving him with his nanny or even his grandparents. She didn't like being away from him. When Pablo was a toddler, she told me she was looking at getting him microchipped, just to be sure they wouldn't be separated. I was taken aback and sort of teased her. I was like, he's not a dog, Diana. Isn't that illegal? I was really, really paranoid about somebody kidnapping him and taking him away from me. I mean, I had a tracker on him for when he started going to school, when he started going to preschool. There's a little thing, little chain that he would carry. And, if, and I kept telling him, if anything ever happens, anybody ever takes you or you ever get lost, you push this button and the police will come. I would have dreams that he wasn't with me, that somebody would take him away. And I would be, and I would look for him and I would look for him. And then it really, really, I really started obsessing with it. And I'm still not okay with, like, leaving him in the house by himself, or I still need to know where he is at all times. Diana is type A in general, but it's hard not to draw a line between her being left behind and this fear that she has of ever being separated from Pablo. I brought it up to her. To my surprise, it was like a light bulb went off. She never connected those things, and it made sense to her. The idea that all of this was now shaping Pablo's life, too, a whole generation later. Two years ago, there was something of a reckoning in my family at my birthday. It started out as an argument about family history, like about my paternal grandmother's politics. But it became about all of this everything Diana was feeling exploded. She finally told my mom how she felt, how she hadn't been treated fairly since she was little. She talked about feeling lonely. She said she still felt like she needed to please mom and never could. My mom apologized. She asked for forgiveness, but Diana was so angry. Things haven't been the same since. Like, um, lately, I've just been thinking, like, God, if I would have just shut up 
and kept on living the way I was living, our relationship would still be great. And yeah, but I had to, for some reason, I had to get angry and I had to get mad and I should have just let things go. Like, why? Who cares, right? Like, I'm 46. I've succeeded in life. Why? Why? Who cares? I should have just let things go. Why did I have to bring things up that I wasn't supposed to? So do you regret it? I do regret it. Oh, really? Yeah, now I do. What do you think you ultimately want from mom? I just want her back. I just want us to have a relationship. But what does that mean, though? Because I want us to be close. I want her to visit Pablo. I want her to give Pablo the time and the love she didn't give me. <laughs> That's all I want. That's all I want. At that birthday, during that fight, I did something I really hadn't done before. I changed my role. Finding our way through all of this, I'd always tried to stay neutral, an intermediary. But in this case, I switched. I stood up for Diana. I stepped in between them, not as a neutral peacekeeper, but to defend my sister. I've been doing that more and more lately. Recently, I was reporting on talking to a bunch of moms at the border in Tijuana. They worried they'd be separated from their kids. I got really upset and kept thinking about Diana, about how she was left behind for so long. So I called her. I felt compelled to tell her what I'd seen. She said she just felt awful for those mothers and their kids. Then I called my mom. She told me she thought it was irresponsible for these mothers to bring their children with them. It was dangerous, she said. And she insinuated that some of the women were lying about why they were leaving. That this was all a trick to bring kids on a journey they shouldn't be on. Which, because of my reporting, I knew it wasn't true. It kind of infuriated me. And so I said, but mom, these women don't want to leave their kids behind. You had to make a similar choice when you left Diana, and I don't think it worked out all that great. As soon as I said it, I felt badly. I still do. Mom was silent. She said, that's completely different. I knew it was a hard thing for mom to hear, but I said it anyway. I felt I needed to, to stand up for Diana in a way, for what she'd been through. My sister and I made a promise to each other recently that we're going to be there for each other no matter what. While we try to fix things with our mom, we're also making a new version of our relationship, where now I'm the one looking out for my big sister, Diana, protecting her as much as she always did for me. Cindy Kakamo is a staff writer at the Los Angeles Times. Coming up, Dida Pajuwa. We translate from sister to English for you. 
That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. It's the BBC News Hour. I'm Bim Adewomi. Kidding. It's This American Life. I'm sitting in for Ira Glass. Today's program, Sisters. Stories about the world sisters create together and what happens when those worlds are unmade. We've arrived at Sister Act 2, Megan and Sybil. There's this thing that I read years ago that I think about quite often, and it came up a lot as we were putting together this show. It's a Toni Morrison interview from 2015, and the interviewer, Rachel Kadziganser, asked Miss Morrison about her sister Lois. Were they close? She asked. And apparently, Toni Morrison gave her an eye roll that she described as so sharp it chopped down the question and me. After a long pause, she gave her answer. My sister? I need her. I think about it because the language is so simple, yet so grand. I get it. The person you need to that degree that it defines so much of who you are. The first act of our show was about someone who had spent decades trying to close the gap with her sister because they were apart until she was eight years old. This next story is the reverse. These sisters, Megan and Sybil Neuringer, were together up through eight. Their separation started when they were nine. Lily Sullivan has the story. The sisters in this story are Megan and Sybil. They're twins. Identical. And when you ask Megan to describe her childhood, ages zero through nine, she doesn't hesitate. She told me it felt like heaven. We played so much pretend. We had all these trees in our backyard and they knocked down a tree. And the guts of the tree were out in our lawn and you could see the pulp, the soft like white pulp of the tree. And it was like kind of moist. And we played like we were eating like the chicken meat of the tree. And we thought this was like the most incredible discovery (laughs) that like, oh my God, the tree is made of chicken meat and we're eating the chicken. Like I think we ate tree pulp. We had a song that we would sing with each other, and it was like our twin chant, and we would like sing it all the time, and we would just go, di-di-da, pajua, di-di-da, pajua. I have no idea what it means, but I know what it feels like. Huh. Because we did it in front of the mirror together. We like to see, it's funny, like, there was something that's like occurring to me. We like to see ourselves as twins in front of the mirror when we did the chant, like to see, oh my gosh, there you are and there I am. There I am and there you are, but you look like me and I look like you. And it's the same. Do you remember having like an opinion about her? Like what did you think she was like? Oh, I, I, I loved her. It sounds weird, but it was like so, it was like my first foray into like romance, but it wasn't romance, but it was, it was like pure love. I was, like, in love with my sister. Sybil died when they were nine years old. And it's only recently that Megan's really started talking about Sybil at all. For decades, it's been too hard. It wasn't only that she died. It was also the way that they were separated. It was really sudden. She told me it was September, the beginning of fifth grade. The school day had just ended. They were walking with a group of kids and stopped at a hot dog stand. And... While we were at the stand, I don't know why, Sybil just ran across the street. Um, And when she ran across the street, she got hit by a car. Um, And I saw it happen. And I screamed just 
I just was screaming. I didn't even know I was screaming, but somebody came and stopped me from screaming. And I tried to run out into the street and somebody stopped me. And she was lying in the street. And I remember there was this mechanic or some guy in like a dirty outfit and he had a like oily rag and he went to her to wipe the blood off her forehead and he's putting this dirty rag on her head and I I I didn't like that the ambulance took Sybil to the hospital Megan went home and waited alone she desperately wanted to see Sybil but her parents didn't let her so she never saw Sybil again Megan remembers when her mom told her they were going to unplug Sybil, how angry she was, and how she begged them not to. If your sister is your whole world, what happens when she's gone? I was born with Sybil. There was always Sybil. And so when she was gone, Uh, I felt so weird. I felt, that's the word, I just felt like, ugh, this is not right. Without Sybil, Megan really didn't know who she was or who she should be. So she started inventing ways to keep Sybil around. This is sort of where I was like, I have to do something really exceptional and remarkable with my life. I'm responsible for whatever Sybil didn't get to have. So I'll live that life and I'll live my life and I'll combine them and it's going to be like ultra Megatron life. All the pressure was on for me to have the most amazing life of all time. I like had to be the best. Had you been like that before? I don't think so. (laughs) No, I was pretty messy. Every teacher when you'd get like reviewed for like how Megan was in class was like, Megan is exceptionally bright, curious, great kid, not a perfectionist, sloppy, very undisciplined. She became disciplined. She also started doing all the things Sybil was no longer doing, the things Sybil loved, like her ballet classes. Sybil had loved ballet. Megan had quit years earlier. Too strict. The leotards were too girly for her. And it bugged her how the teacher would always be telling her to pull her tush in. But after she died, I started taking ballet lessons. And I danced. Hmm. Ballet and jazz. All of it. Um, And I have to tell you, I didn't like it. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't like it. Sybil had written poetry. So Megan started writing poetry, too. That one she liked, though sitting at her desk in their room, composing in her journal, the way Sybil had. In my journal, I would write, we're going to make it. We're making it. We are. I wrote as we, me and Sybil. We're going to get an A on this test. You know, we're going to ace the SATs. We're, we have to. We have to make it. Making it. We are making it. Making it meant... If there was any opportunity to achieve, she owed it to Sybil to excel. So a few months after Sybil died, there was this thing at school, the Presidential Fitness Award. One of those national fitness tests they made lots of kids do back in the 80s that everyone seems to remember with a sense of shame and failure. How long could you hold a sitting V, dangling in front of your classmates in gym trying to do a pull-up? 
I decided, well, I can be anything and I'm going to get the presidential physical fitness award. I have to. I started training for it basically with my mom. I'm like, I have to practice the standing broad jump because you have to get a certain amount. And um, there was like the nine minute mile. This was like so hard for me, like running, oh my God, a nine minute mile. And I remember when I was competing for it, I started feeling so tired in my lungs that I started hyperventilating because I'd put so much pressure on myself too. And I, I was hyperventilating and I started crying. And I remember these two classmates, these boys were helping me off the track and I'm crying and I'm letting myself down and I'm like letting Sybil down and I'm not going to get it. And I, they're like helping me off the track and I pushed them away and I finished like crying and hyperventilating. This is literally like the story of my life. <laughs> I'm not naturally good at it. Uh, I'm pretty close to quitting. Somebody's like, you should quit. And then I'm like, actually, let me finish crying and hyperventilating and like try to get what I want. <laughs> but my name was up on that wall and I still have the t-shirt from fifth grade. That first year after Sybil died, Megan doesn't remember letting herself cry about Sybil. She didn't talk about her. She felt like if she started crying, she'd never stop. She'd cry so much that she'd end up in a mental hospital. As she got older, she'd get stuck on certain thoughts. That she should have been the one who died. That Sybil was the better twin. She often thought about killing herself, but thought, what an insult to Sybil. Her parents weren't much help with any of this. They talked about sending her to a therapist, but Megan didn't want to go. And they didn't force her. So they just never talked about any of it. Like, there was no... But what does Megan want? But what about Megan? Like, which is fine. Truly, like, my parents were living, like, a full nightmare. <sighs> my parents were so sad. Everybody was so sad. And it was like, well, I can't be. She made a point of trying to act like everything was fine. To hold it together. And as she got into high school... She got even more intense, doing this thing she sometimes calls double living. Living a life that's not just the best, but twice as good as a normal life. For Sybil. The destination was like to go to the best college and to have the best life. Making it. We were going to make it. By the time she's an adult, that voice in her head putting pressure on her it just kind of became Megan's personality, how she thought about herself. Like, I have to get this right. It has to be perfect. It can't be stupid. It can't just be fun. It has to mean something. So is this something you feel like you wouldn't have done if you weren't doing it for Sybil in some way? That's a really hard question to answer because I don't, like, who am I? Who am I if Sybil hadn't passed away? I That's something I would love to know. But... I honestly don't know because I don't know if this ambition would have been here in some ways anyway. Like, I really don't know. Yeah. What do you think Sybil would have would think if she, like, were seeing you pushing yourself to do things that were painful for you like that all those years? Or what do you think she'd say? Um, I understand your question. And I don't know why I always have this, like, instant reluctance when... 
people ask me, what do you think Sybil would think or say? And other people have asked. And I think I, I think I get so just, it's not your fault. It's, it's that I think I instantly get outraged that I have to answer for her. Oh yeah. I don't like it. Like, I don't like having to imagine I'm mad that she can't answer you. And I think maybe my reaction is just a little bit nuts. I think it's a normal question. Like, I think it's a really natural question. But um, to like try to imagine her reaction to adult Megan, I, in a lot of ways she's frozen for me at nine. She is. Sybil's nine. She died at nine. Everything else is an invention. It's only recently that Megan started trying to sort out who she is outside of Sybil. This began a few years ago, when her mom was dying of cancer. Megan was with her the whole time, through hospice, and all those days when her mom was in and out of consciousness, on morphine, in that middle place between living and dying. And she, at one point, was calling me Sybil a lot. And I said, at one point, no, Mom, I'm Megan. Sybil died. And she corrected me. And she said, no, Megan died. We lost Megan. Sybil stayed. And, um, and I remember, you know, I was kind of shocked and, but not, not because it hurt my feelings, but that maybe she's right. Maybe Megan did die and Sybil did stay. And this whole time, you know, yeah, I'm the dead one. Megan had thought that if she could do the right things, then she might start feeling less dead. But it wasn't working. So just in the past few years, she started to let go of this project to live for Sybil. It hasn't been easy, but she feels more like herself. She's put down some of that anger she's always had about the injustice of Sybil's death. And that's cleared the way for her to feel more like she did when they were together. It surprised her, she said. She feels close to Sybil again. She loves her. Lily Sullivan is one of the producers of our show. Before we go, there's this passage from Housekeeping, a novel about two sisters written by Marilyn Robinson, published in 1980. It nails something about sisters that I just really identify with, the kind of inadvertent performance sisters sometimes put on, that people notice and are drawn to. She writes, Having a sister or a friend is like sitting at night in a lighted house. Those outside can watch you if they want, but you need not see them. You simply say, Here are the perimeters of our attention. If you prowl around under the windows till the crickets go silent, we will pull the shades. If you wish us to suffer your envious curiosity, you must permit us not to notice it. Anyone with one solid human bond is that smug, and it is the smugness, as much as the comfort and safety, that lonely people covet and admire. 
Our show today was produced by Laura Starczewski and Lily Sullivan. The people who put together today's show include Elna Baker, Ben Calhoun, Dana Chivis, Sean Cole, Aviva de Kornfeld, Damian Grave, Hano Joffewalt, Mickey Meek, Lena Masitsis, Doe Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Nadia Raymond, Ari Sapistine, Alyssa Ship, Matt Tierney, and Diane Wu. Our managing editor is Sarah Abdurrahman, senior editor David Kustenbaum, our executive editor is Emmanuel Berry. Special thanks today to Cindy and Diana Kakamo's mother, Reed Johnson, Luz Paz, Cora, Nick Feinbarg, Sylvia and Brian Malamut, Maggie and Lila Margulies, Noga Newberg, and my big sister, Ade Adewumi. Fact-checking by Andrea Lopez-Crusado and Christopher Swatala. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can stream our archive of over 700 episodes for absolutely free. And there's videos and lists of favorite shows and tons of other stuff there too. Again, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Special thanks to our regular host, Ira Glass. He's got this ritual before every interview. He goes to the bathroom, looks straight in the mirror, and has a pep talk conversation with himself. Oh, it's a good thing you're smart. I'm glad you're smart. <laughs> yeah, I am smart. I'm Bim Adewomi. We'll be back next week with more stories of This American Life. This American Life.